The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment. But as a passive investor with no day-to-day -day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership, the limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Well, awesome. Welcome, partners. Again, this is your host, Jake Wiley. I'm super excited this week. I'm joined by Anthony Walker, who is the CEO and managing broker at Buckingham Investments. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for you too, because I think this conversation will be a little bit different than the ones I've, I'm typically having. You are an active broker. You're also a syndicator. You're also in California, where, as we all read the, the headlines, people are leaving in droves, right, for the, the Sun Belt. So I, I'm really eager to get in and see how what you see in the market, where the opportunities are. But again, I, I don't want to steal all your thunder. I'll let you do a little intro on yourself. If if you wouldn't mind, share with our guest you know, a little bit about you and, and how you got to where you are today. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, I've been investing in this market, I guess, going back to about 2009 now. I had interesting timing getting into things. I had a corporate job for almost 10 years here in the LA area, just really never going to set me up for financial independence. And I really wanted to do something about that. So I went to business school, started back in 2008, right as the subprime crisis started to tip over and get really interesting so that was an interesting time to be there. And while I was getting my MBA, I took a real estate investing class and I thought, hey, here it is. You can create financial independence for yourself by buying buildings. So I got really interested at that point in time. And right around then, I, I believe in 2010, I got introduced to Buckingham Investments, which is the company that I'm now running. And I was a client first. It's a local brokerage company. We help really a lot of new investors or people looking to scale up, learn about investing in multifamily properties mostly. And a colleague of mine at school had an existing relationship with the company. So he introduced me. I bought a little duplex to get started. And then also he and some other friends of ours at that point partnered up and we started syndicating deals kind of coming out of the subprime crisis. So it was an interesting time for me. I got exposed to beginning as an agent in the investment space, being a sponsor, investing as a limited partner in some deals. And now over the last 12, 13 years, I've managed a number of investment syndications. I've opened up new offices for Buckingham. I've taken the company over as CEO five years ago and developed a personal portfolio of, I think I have 16 buildings now, um, just myself. And then I've syndicated a handful of deals as well with various operating partners in different structures. Uh, it's been quite a ride. It's a lot of fun. But yeah, as you say, I really kind of wear three hats here. I really like your background because like you, I started 2006, seven, eight, nine, right? I got to ride this thing up and then watch the whole bottom fall out. And there's moments in time where I felt like I was complete idiot for jumping into this thing. And then, you know, as the market started to improve, I started to feel more like a genius and like I knew exactly what I was doing because I got in, weathered the storm and then was able to kind of ride things going up. But I think it's an interesting segue into where we are today, right? And we're going to dive into a couple of things that I think 
you're uniquely capable of answering, but maybe we'll start with some blocking and tackling. You're a broker, but you're also a syndicator. As a broker, you get to work with probably a bunch of other syndicators. As a syndicator yourself, you understand what it's like to be on the other side of the table. If you would start helping us understand what does a good syndicator look like? When you're looking at deals as a broker, who are you comfortable working with? And maybe who do you kind of move to the side or the back of the pile, like the last ditch effort kind of people? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's about the relationship and principal's ability to perform and really work together. It's kind of a funny perspective that I have, I think, compared to some other people that are in the space as a broker, because it's really easy to think, well, the brokers are just these aggressive salesperson types and, you know, there to be abused to get your deal. And that's certainly the attitude I've seen from some people. Now, that's not a very effective attitude from my side of the table. You'd be amazed how many people just call you up with no pre-existing relationship and say, hey, I'm a big deal. Send me all your off-market deals. And you can imagine like that's obviously first thing I do, right? Is, oh yeah, here you go. Here's all the off-market deals I have of these sellers that trust me to get them the best price for their property and close. I've been waiting on you. Where have you been? Exactly, right? Like, sure, yeah, let me just send those over. So, I mean, I really look for people that can articulate their strategy, what they're looking for in investment thesis, and show me why what they're looking for matches what I'm doing in the market and that they're going to be easy to work with. You know, not that they're going to roll over and do everything necessarily that, you know, a seller wants to see, but that they understand what they're getting into, that they have the ability to be creative and pivot around problems in escrow. Our market has a lot of hundred year old buildings. So these are things that we have to work around. If people are coming in and you can kind of tell and smell if a retrade is coming, those aren't the first people that I'm looking to work with either. But when the syndicators take the time to introduce themselves, meet me, talk about other deals that they've done, show a little bit about what their structure looks like, that helps me know that they're going to be able to close, right? If it's somebody that's entering our market for the first time and they don't have their debt straightened out and they want to write an offer that looks to me impossible to perform on, that's a very different conversation than somebody that I know has done their homework already. They know what they're getting into. They've got a good capital stack behind them already as far as an interest list at least going on or other deals to look at. Very different relationship than that first category of person I was telling you about. And I guess, has, has, have you found that being a broker helps you be a better syndicator when you're having the conversations and putting things together? Because you get to see, I guess you get a lot of reps on where things fall apart. If you're a syndicator, you're putting a deal together you know, like your rep is one at a time, whereas like you're sitting at the table looking at a bunch of these things. That's a great point, actually. The way I like to syndicate is I like to work with operating partners that do a lot of the heavy lifting on actually running the deals. But as a broker, I have a front row center seat to, as you said, lots of transactions. You know, like last year alone, I personally did 40 transactions. I get to see what's likely to actually close, what realistic terms look like on debt and equity equity, what exit values really are. And it's easy to underwrite a building and focus on the numbers and operations and stuff like that. But being able to know really what we're going to be able to sell a building for in the end, what it's really worth today, what the market actually looks like and what winning offer is likely to look like is a huge competitive advantage versus other people. And it makes me that much more comfortable to go to our limited investors and say, hey, we really know this is a good deal. This is where it's going to sell. Our exit analysis is realistic. It's a big difference is somebody that might do one deal a year or two deals a year. You brought up a really interesting point about the exit strategy, right? So I kind of alluded to this in the first part of the show, but I think in terms of California, the exit strategy is the people, it seems like. At least that's what the news shows. And as you're looking at deals, I mean, that's a unique 
twist. If we think about when you go to the conferences, nobody's talking about going to California. It's all Sunbelt. It's all in the South. You see some real opportunity in California. Let's talk about the opportunity. And then two, how are you evaluating kind of that exit strategy that really shows that there's you've had some thought and like you know what you're doing there? Because I think that's a big concern. Yeah, and fairly so. So uh, yeah, I mean, you can't go anywhere without reading a headline about people leaving California and the old U-Haul chart, right, that they show on every presentation. You know, the reality is there's still millions and millions of people who want to be in California, want to stay in California, and tons of people that are still moving here every day. I think if you unpack the statistics, it's a little more nuanced than would lead you to believe. You know, we did lose population on a net basis over the last year, two years, right? Nobody's going to deny that, especially with COVID being easier to live at lower cost of living states. That's a reality. On the other hand, we are still gaining highly educated people that are coming here for really well-paying jobs. So we're kind of trading people that can't afford to live here at the bottom end, but can and want to be here at the top end. I think if you look at the numbers, the LA area lost something like, you know, net population growth was like less than 1% negative over the last year, which in a metro area of 10 million people that's underserved in housing units somewhere to the tune of a million units. I'm really not too worried about that from a demographic standpoint and a fundamental standpoint. When you look at the market here, though, as an investor and as an exit strategy, it's actually become more attractive to me. Like maybe two, three, five years ago, if you looked at cap rates across the country, you would probably get 200 to 500 basis points higher going to other markets versus what you might expect to see here in LA, depending on where you're investing in LA. We, I mean, one of the other nice things is you can buy a one and a half cap in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, or you can get a five and a half cap in other parts of the city, right? Uh, you do have a lot of choices there. But if you look at the market now, there's really been a flattening out of cap rates across much of the country compared to what we see here. One of my favorite markets where I own most of my properties uh, is in Long Beach, California. It's coastal. It's a major urban center that's right basically on the beach in LA County. So it's got a lot going for it as far as a diverse job base, really great location, super dense population. And the cap rates that we're getting here, I would say average maybe four and a quarter, four and a half on the type of buildings that we're doing. And I know if you go to some of these other markets in the Sunbelt where people are raising funds for and the, the investment thesis is take your money out of California and come over here, the cap rates are the same. Basically, maybe they're a little bit higher, maybe even lower in some cases, depending on how popular your market is. So from my standpoint, knowing just how much demand there is here, the supply constraint that we have on the rental side and the difficulty of new construction, as well as these are still assets you can buy that are 10 blocks to the Pacific Ocean. So the long-term prospects there are amazing. Rent growth has been really healthy. The next obvious question I get on this topic is, well, yeah, but what about the legislative environment? That's really real. You have to understand you know, all the rules that are involved. They're changing every day and you need to be able to navigate in that environment. But if you can, again, it's a real competitive advantage. Understanding how it works here and being able to operate in this environment. You know, the reality is, is that rent controls and other tenant protections exist because rents have gone up incredibly aggressively over the last few years, which is honest, that's a good thing if you're an owner of property, right? So there's a bit of a chicken and egg dilemma there when you start to talk, compare it to other markets. This might make you laugh, but every time I hear about Long Beach, I think about Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre albums where they always throw out 
you know, Long Beach and Compton. Um, do you ever get that from anybody else or is it just me? Totally. Yeah. No, people that haven't been there before, they Long Beach. That's the only thing they know about Long Beach, right? But the truth is, you know, like the rest of LA, Long Beach is actually a huge city. You know, there's super nice, expensive parts of Long Beach, uh, close to the beach and in downtown. We have a really vibrant downtown area that's got a lot of new construction and redevelopment going on. It's got a really diverse job base. And then it has some lower income areas that are definitely higher up in the risk profile. And that actually makes it a great city to invest in because there's a little bit of something for everyone. The other thing you'll hear all the time about Long Beach is that it's really block by block, right? So you cross one street and everything changes. From my standpoint as an investor, that's a great thing. If you can buy one block outside of really expensive, hot in-demand area and you get a great price for doing that, you really don't have to wait very long for that to catch up to your block. And there's a lot of transaction activity happening too. So there's a lot of people like us that are buying buildings, renovating them, proving the community. And so we have seen, as you said, like a rising tide lifting all ships is a real thing in our, in our market. It's been an exciting decade. You're throwing out some statistics there in the beginning and you're saying that like the, the population growth has been like negative 1%. That's clearly not the numbers that you're seeing like on the U-Haul charts and everything else saying, you know, people are just flocking out of California. So yes, there is out migration, but it's not devastating. And then I think in, in your area, like you said, you're replacing some of the folks that need to go somewhere else for affordability with people that can afford it. That's an interesting concept as well. And, and to your point, right, like then it starts putting pressure on neighborhood right next door. You can. It's like, yeah, I'll go across the street. Everybody thinks it's a terrible neighborhood. It was like, well, give it a minute. We've seen that all over the, the metro area here. It's I mean, going back to not to harp on Long Beach so much, but Long Beach compared to, say, more central L.A., you know, an average one bedroom rent in Long Beach this a year old statistic was probably going for $1,450, $1,500. And in LA, $1,800, something like that, right? And this, these are markets that are in the middle of the night or 20 minutes apart from each other in the middle of the day, more like 45. It's a doable commute for people, right? So for tenants that are looking at living in a unit in LA for 1800 bucks, where you could go down to a more affordable area that's still really nice and has tons of amenities and a beachfront lifestyle like Long Beach and get a huge discount on your rent, We've definitely seen a lot of that happening, even within our little metro. So to your point, we've, rents have just been rising in some of these areas that were much more affordable uh, a year or two ago. We've been amazed at what we're getting for new leases. Well, let's I'm gonna go back to a question I alluded to earlier, too, is from an exit strategy, right? If we're thinking you know, three, five, seven-year holds, the market the way it is, how are you looking at exit strategies, especially in a market where most people are kind of shying away from? So, you know, in Southern California, most investments, at least, are not really a, a yield play, right? Cash flow is pretty low. Cap rates are comparatively low to what you might get in other areas, depending on where you're buying. And so a lot of it hinges on the value add that you're able to achieve on, on your units. Now, when you have rent growth where it is, and you have a lot of buildings that are still kind of owner-managed, very fragmented market, a lot of smaller properties, there's a lot of opportunity there. You're not going to be coupon clipping and getting big quarterly distributions here, but to the extent that you're able to renovate units and you know, raise rents, there's still a huge amount of value add. Uh, I like to use the GRM versus the cap rate just to do simple back of the envelope analysis here in our market. And if your average GRM here is say like 15 and you can raise your gross scheduled rents by a hundred grand, that's huge, right? You've just made a million and a half dollars in value add on your property. And I guess just to pause you there for a second, would you explain GRM? I think that would be helpful. Sure. Yeah. If you haven't heard of that before, it's kind of like a PE ratio, but for real estate, it's just the price that you 
you pay for a building or the value divided by the gross scheduled rents. So that's your rent roll times 12. It ignores expenses completely. So for those shysty brokers who like to understate expenses, you know, and all that kind of stuff, it eliminates all that subjectivity from your analysis. And it's a really simple representation of basically the value of $1 in annual rent revenue. If you're at a 15 GRM in a market, every dollar of annual rent revenue is worth $15 on sale price or purchase price. Now that's higher in our area than you might experience in other parts of the country. But what that means is that although it's harder to cash flow, that you get a ton of extra value for every dollar you can add to the top line in the building. Combine that with lower expense ratios here because we don't have weather and buildings are more expensive but smaller on a square footage size to begin with. And you've got a pretty good equation for adding a lot of value over the ownership period. Now, obviously, you have to be careful with that getting back to your question on the exit strategy because if it mostly hinges on your sale price, that's not for everyone. But as long as you don't just assume that cap rates are going to continue to go down, which is an important question to be asking these days, and the value is actually there to cap, you know, capture in the building as you buy it, you're going to do really well. Even besides that, thinking about where we are in an inflationary environment and what that does to rent and values in an extreme supply constrained geographical area. And it's a pretty good strategy, even if you don't have a huge amount of upside in a building to capitalize on. You brought up a really great point that I just want to make sure that I emphasize is that when you look at the GRM, so the gross rent multiplier as a way to value the building, you've got the cap rate, which is your traditional way of valuing the building. Cap rate includes all of the expenses, right? So to your point, point, there, there might be brokers that are fudging, you know, which ones are in and which ones are out, right? Because there are things that are excluded from the cap rate calculation of or net operating income. So if you look at it both ways, right, you have a cap rate and then you have a GRM, you might be able to find some of those outliers where maybe somebody is doing something a little bit funky. So I, I think that was a really, really great point. And I just wanted to kind of call that out. So thank you. Thank you. Maybe my question for you then is for all of us as limited partners, we've been told stay away from California, right? Like that's coming out. I guess what advice would you give to the community about potentially looking at California? I mean, you brought up a bunch of great points, but if you're going to make a sales pitch for Southern California, I guess that's, that's your market. What is that? I mean, I think it's kind of a combination of a lot of the things that I've mentioned so far. I mean, first of all, you have to go into it knowing what, what you're getting into, right? Like I said, it's, it's not a yield investment for the most part. You're probably not going to get great cash flow. On the other hand, despite, you know, quite a bit of capital going elsewhere in the country and some out migration, the fundamentals here are ridiculously favorable for owning apartment buildings, right? If you think about it just on a really simple level, I'm in Torrance. This is where our headquarters are. That's in the South. South Bay, kind of near LAX, just south of like LA proper. And we have a $1 trillion metro, gross metropolitan product here in the greater LA area. And from where I'm sitting, you need to drive anywhere between 50 and 75 miles out not to find city with basically very little land in order to build more units. And if you can find land where you can build more units, good luck getting any plans or permits approved or finding the labor at a good price you need to build anything. From a very simple supply and demand perspective, you have a, a huge amount of existing demand in place with that third most productive metropolitan economy in the world. Never mind some workers, you know, moving out or not. Our economy is not going anywhere. And then you have this constrained supply where it's really difficult to add any new construction. We're not in the middle of the desert. We're not in the middle of the plains. We've got ocean on two sides, mountains to the north and 100 miles of city to the east. If you've got a long term time horizon and you understand how that works, forget the legislative environment. Forget all that stuff. That's a really good recipe 
to be investing in real estate in an inflationary environment right now where we don't know what's happening in the future, right? A low cap rate environment is generally less risky. Your preservation of capital is going to look better. And as you own these things, people love to say, don't bet against California. Because if you look at these charts, it just tends to keep defying logic, no matter what the you know state government might do. And things tend to keep going up here. You don't have a lot of the same concerns that you need to be worried about in some of these secondary and tertiary markets where you're hinging on one major employer or a huge new project of new supply is going to drastically affect your ability to get quality tenants and charge top of the market rents. And it's much easier to operate here, assuming you can be comfortable with all the rules and stuff like that. So it really is a great market to be involved in. You know, of course, from a diversification standpoint, great to have uh, you know, a little bit of money spread out, you know, in case that this goes unusually well, which it has in the past. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the point that you're bringing up there to you indirectly, which I think is really neat is there are generalisms, right? Which is everybody's investing in the Sun Belt. However, there are micro opportunities where there is an opportunity within a certain geographic region that's worth looking at. If you're looking at investments, you're looking at operators, you don't just need to automatically disqualify a location because it doesn't fit within the generalism. And I think that the case that you built for Southern California, there's scarcity, right? There really isn't a ton of population out migration. There is a housing shortage. California has just always been attractive to people. Yes, like in a pandemic when you're sitting at home, it's like, man, could I live in a home that's cheaper? Sure, somewhere else right? Like if you're locked in a box, like you're locked in a box, like why pay twice the rent for it? But at the end of the day, people are going to come back. I mean, they said the same thing about New York. And I think the, the New York market is, is higher than it's ever been, right? It just took a couple lumps on the head. So I just wanted to call out that fact is that you made a great case for kind of a micro market. It's not really a micro market because you're talking about a hundred miles of city in every direction, but it is, you know, the generalism would say, get out of California. You made a great case for why you should. And I think that as a limited partner, you should talk to people that have a unique perspective, a micro market, an opportunity, and not just disqualify things because it doesn't fit with like the generalizations that we're seeing out in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point putting it that way, going back to the different micro markets that you have available, even within a 20 minute drive of where I'm sitting right now. If I go west, I go to Manhattan Beach and cap rates are in the ones, right? If I go east or south, I can go to Long Beach, I can go to the eastern suburbs and we're in the fours, maybe even the fives. And so if you have an operator that knows what they're doing in that local market, you can make money in either of those places. If you have somebody that knows the local market well and the strategy aligns with what you're looking to do with your capital, you're going to do well. There is money, there's millions, billions of dollars being invested in all of these markets here. Whether or not whatever people are saying in the syndicated real estate seminar and podcasting space is all about moving money to the Sun Belt, there's still billions of dollars getting invested in LA and not all that money is stupid. In fact, most of it is not, right? So yeah, to me, as a limited investor, it's about knowing your operating partner, you know, making sure that they understand what they're doing, that their strategy has a track record of success, and that that aligns with your goals, you're going to be able to probably make money in any market, honestly. I think you made a really compelling case. And this has been a, a great conversation, like you said, or like we were saying early on, it's a little different than what we typically have, right? Because we did get into a market. But I thought that was really important to bring out because it tells a different story and there is opportunity. So Anthony, thank you for that. As we wrap up every show, I always like to kind of end with gratitude. You know, none of us got to where we were without somebody taking a bet on us, maybe giving us an opportunity that maybe we didn't deserve. And I want to give you an opportunity to maybe call you know one or two people out that gave you a leg up along the way. So I got to give a shout out to Marty Stone. He's one of the founders of our company of Buckingham Investments. 
He's mostly retired now. And I met him right when I was starting my journey. He really taught me a lot about a lot of the fundamentals, how to invest here. Like I said, I was actually a client of our company first, bought my first little starter duplex getting going. And so I'm grateful for him to that. He's written three books actually over the years. So if you're interested, you could check those out. Probably the most popular one is called The Unofficial Guide to Real Estate Investing. Um, and then a good friend of mine from business school who actually introduced me to the industry to begin with, his name's Ryan Mansoor. He's also a, a syndicator. We've become really good friends over the years. Grateful for him to inviting me into this community to begin with, showing me the ropes and taking a chance partnering with me on some of my first few deals. So thanks, Ryan, if you ever uh, listen to this. I agree. Hopefully you do listen to this. But Anthony, thank you for sharing. And thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.